installment of our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we will provide comments on Episode 9, Into the Forest I Go. Now the episode title uh, relates to several of the characters the title, Into the Forest I Go, is inspired from a quote by 19th century naturalist John Muir. The quote reads, Into the Forest... But before we begin our analysis of this particular episode, we want to say a few words about other critiques of the show you may have read in print or in social media or have listened to through YouTube. Okay, so here's the situation. Um... What I've noticed has been a number of critics, specifically critics who claim to be fans of Star Trek, who've had a running argument against this show because of the obvious anachronisms that, or, or changes it appears to present to what we call currently established canon for the show. And I think that part of that's a little bit manufactured and I don't mean that there isn't legitimate problems with the show but what I am saying is that there are that sometimes I think people are being overtly critical I think we need to understand that when Star Trek the original series was created it was on for three seasons but it was canceled after the second season and to be completely honest with you the consistency or the continuity that we think of around the original show wasn't really a main objective of the writers and producers of that show. Um, they were trying to keep a show that was paying them a, work, a living salary on the air. And they made constant modifications over the course of the three seasons, not only in the way the characters behave or more so their backstory. I mean, perfect example of this is any episode that you see where Kirk names the number of people on the Enterprise. It ranges somewhere between 325 to 462 people. And that's, that's fairly <laughs> inconsistent. Um, the other thing that we might want to look at is the fact that there is nothing prior to Journey to Babel that ever gives us an indication that Spock is a bi-species character, that he is both human and Vulcan. It's that episode right there that actually reveals that information to us. Um, likewise, I think some of the continuity that we've fostered on to the characters of the original show really was not there. Um, we, I, I had a conversation with some fans who were friends of mine regarding Harry Mudd. And one of the things that they said specifically is that Mud had never been that critical or that violent in the original series or that manipulative in the original series. And I think they, I think they were basing it solely on the I Mud episode where he is held hostage by a group of androids on that planet. That one is not the first time we meet Harry Mud. In the first episode, Mud's Women, he is extremely devious. He's manipulating not only the women that he's bringing to those miners, but the miners, and he's doing a certain amount of manipulation of Kirk and the Enterprise. He, je he jeopardizes them all for his financial benefit. 
which is just like the hairy mud that we saw in the two episodes that we that were presented in Discovery. So I, so th- yes, there may be differences in regards to how they approached it, but there is a core that's very similar. Likewise, I think that there are sometimes that we create this um, perception of uh, in a, the, the inappropriateness of certain characters that I don't think is credible if we look at it over time. We Discovery is a serialized TV show, and uh, in the Star Trek canon of, of shows, the only one that's closest to it is Deep Space Nine, and that's my favorite, so I'm very familiar with the whole serialized nation. When we had the Dominion War, we had a great deal of serialization that went there, and so every episode played off of the information that was received from the previous one. In that way, specifically with serialized television today, it's a lot more like a book where each episode is a chapter in that book or like a play where each scene plays into the total story that is going to play out over a course of, of a couple of hours. And we wouldn't necessarily critique each individual chapter in a book whether they're good or bad. That's the problem that we have now. When we do these episode-by-episode reviews, we're sort of doing the same thing of of critiquing a chapter and not really understanding how things play out. All the experiences or actions of a character plays out until you finish that book in total. And likewise, what we're talking about here is we can't really know how each episode is going to play out until we see the full story. It's the, it's, and when we, we do it, we make attempts to try to wait a couple of days to let our reactions play out so that what we give you is not a hot take, but something that may have been some, the, the, measured over time. So we're looking at the, each episode in the context of the show that exists, not the one that we may have wanted, but it is what we're being offered. And that way, we, I think we can judge it more effectively. So thanks, Gary, for that explanation. Again, um, that's why we don't give instant reviews on the same night. Uh, We really want to have a thoughtful process here. So let's get to this particular episode, and we're going to look at the plot. Now, unlike other podcasts, you know, we've said in the past that we're not trying to give a very detailed recap of the episode, but in this episode, we really do have to provide more information on the plot than normal. So uh, for the most part, this is a pretty straightforward action-adventure episode that takes up where we left off with episode eight. Uh, So we find ourselves um, um, seeing that the sarcophagus, that's that Klingon ship that's commanded by Call. Also called, called the Ship of the Dead. Also the Ship of the Dead. is headed to the planet Pavel, and their intent is to destroy the planet, which contains an antenna the Federation had planned to modify as a device to warn them of cloaked Klingon ships in that sector of space. Admiral Toral orders the Discovery to retreat to a starbase. However, Captain Lorca tacitly defies that order to instead attempt to figure out another way to identify the cloaked ship. 
The crew devises a plan to place two sensors on the sarcophagus that will allow them to map the cloaking grid. Tyler and Burnham serve as the away team to set the sensors at the helm and stern of the sarcophagus. Using the spore drive, Stamus must initiate 133 jumps in rapid succession to allow the data collection necessary for this task. The mission is successful. The Povins are saved. Admiral Cornwell is rescued. Laurel is taken prisoner and the sarcophagus is destroyed. The collected data then provides the Federation the information needed for them to, to detect cloaked ships and turn the tide of the war against the Klingons. Lorca learns he will be awarded the Legion of Honor for the bravery of the ship and its crew. With a few notable exceptions, all seems well with the crew when Stamets agrees to initiate one last jump to get the discovery safely to a starport. However, the jump goes terribly wrong, and the crew finds they are unable to identify where they have landed. So now we want to talk a little bit about the character development that happens during this episode. Gary, why don't you talk first about Michael Burnham? Okay, so um, in this episode, we you know better about how to use logic. She, she learns better about how to use logic to influence others. I mean, specifically in the case of when Captain Lorca refuses to allow her to go on the, the really risky mission of beaming onto the sarcophagus ship to place the sensors so that they can start mapping the ship in, in, um, and under cloak. Um, however, unlike what happens when she was confronting Captain Giorgio, she that that eventually did lead to this war. Um, she uses logic in a in a real sense to persuade him that she's the right person. She explains why, which she had not done beforehand. Mm-hmm. You also see in this a certain level of of Michael's sense of compassion. When she's on the Klingon ship, you see how she's, you know, she's noting that there are human readings. And so immediately, their mission, she tells Tyler that their mission has to be paused while they go and investigate this. And she doesn't even know who that is. Right. She has no idea as to who it is. But, she, but the thing that she says, which is really clear, is that they don't leave anybody behind. And I think that's also a part of her arc of redemption she will she refuses to place people in a position where they can no longer be left behind because i think that's harking back to her remembering leaving Giorgio's body on the sarcophagus ship beforehand Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, in fact that mm -hmm. may be something that she might be thinking about actually at this point Mm -hmm. um so they that's when they go to the same room that laurel had brought admiral cornwell's body in and you find that they find Cornwell they also find Laurel mm-hmm. um, which it causes Tyler to go through PSTD and have these flashbacks of him being altered, uh, affected cut into by, by Klingon devices 
and it basically incapacitates him. Mm-hmm. And we also find that um, Cornwell does not have the use of her legs, so that what ends up happening is that she's going to have to be left there. Michael is going to have to finish this mission by herself and then come back and get both of them or find a way of communicating with the ship that they will get beamed out. And she promises that she will right. not leave them. Right, right, right. She she also proves herself to be extremely skilled. She places the sensor, and then when it becomes clear that through the Universal Translator, we find out that Call is going to warp out because he's he's... He doesn't know exactly why the Discovery is there attacking them, but he starts to sense that there's some kind of trick behind it. And so as opposed to continue to be put into a situation where he might jeopardize himself and this ship, he he basically gives them the order to warp out. At that point, she steps forward and makes herself aware to the, to the Klingon. She kills two of them, and she cha- she actually confronts Call. She confronts him to the point where she actually calls him out. And he throws a met left her way, and they go at hand-to-hand combat. And I know that was one of your favorite sections. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's definitely proved herself to be a certified badass in this uh, scene. You know, she, she like, steps right into it. He doesn't come after her. She comes after him. Right. And you know that there's a noticeable size difference there's between, size difference. between uh, <laughs> Michael and Cole. Right. But she does not let up. Even at one point, he kicks her away. She she gets up right. and goes right back <laughs> right, at him, right. you know. So, uh, so she has proven herself that she will continue on and uh, you're really against all odds. Right, right, right. And there's some things in this scene that I think just that amp it up emotionally. We see in his hand that he has Giorgio's, I guess what you would call a dog, dog tag, tag. Mm-hmm. Um, that he, he's been using, as he says, to pick his teeth. And so it's insulting. It's more insulting to her of what he's been doing in that context. She... Uh, proceeds to not only fight him but eventually get that back there I mean and, and what I love is that she tells him she's the one who killed Takuvma. oh yeah so basically and he acknowledges that if it hadn't been for that there would not have been she, oh, he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't he wouldn't have been able to proceed the way he wanted to proceed right but not only that but he's he the way she calls him out directly puts him out there she she basically puts puts a puts a challenge on him and he has to compete with her. Well, because she says, you know, essentially you're not worthy. Right, exactly. You, know, exactly. you were just in the in the room at the right time. Right, because you didn't fight at the Battle right. of the Binaries. You were not in part of this was not your mission. You think you thought this was ridiculous. You were gone right. when the battle began. And you've picked up the pieces of the Klingon Empire in an attempt to try to uh coalesce power in your hands so you're an opportunist is basically she was saying which makes it sound more like um a ferengi or a romulan as opposed to somebody who would be from a people who quote unquote believe in honor so so definitely to save face cole has to fight her although he doesn't think she's a worthy opponent no not at all not at all Mm -hmm. but she takes she gets she gets hit and she gets cut up 
But uh, he uh, he he gets his his licks in. He oh, gets some licks too. No, she gets her. Licks yeah, 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 in, right? yeah, yeah. So let's move on to talking about Paul Stamets now and what happened to him now. I will. You know when we were watching this, how upset I was yeah, I know. at at uh, the way Paul Stamets was treated during this episode. Yeah. But let's get into this. So. You know, we already know that Stamets has been experiencing some really serious mental and physical side effects right. from his connection to the sport drive. You know, and, and we find out he's not looking to be a martyr. Nope. You know, so in the in the previous episode, he expressed concern how this condition may affect his partner, Dr. Colbert, professionally and personally. So when Captain Lorca proposes that Stamets makes 133 jumps, he is reluctant to do so out of the concern for his own well-being. Now, but Lorca is able to persuade him by appealing to Stamets' scientific curiosity. Well, his sense of, of being an explorer, that's more so it. And, and he really pulls out that map. That's an amazing thing. I mean, he had he had this whole argument set up in advance. He knew th this is one of the things that's about Lorca that you really clear. He knows how to approach these people in a certain way at their points of passion or at their points of weakness to get them to do what he instinctively wants them to do. Definitely. And so Lorca essentially promises him. He says, well, after the war, they could explore not only new worlds but possibly new dimensions in time and space yeah. and this is all possible because of Stamus's connection to the spore drive so Stamus does take the risk in making the 133 jumps and so the, the discovery can successfully complete its mission to map the electronic signature of the cloaking device however after he's Afterwards, he seems to have lost his appetite for more adventure. He agrees to make one more jump to lessen the risk of the crew reaching a star base safely. Well, you, you see the torture he goes through when he's doing those jumps. And to be honest with you, based on the level of changes his body has gone through, just prior to that, and changes in the brain. The changes, Colbert right, shows right, 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 right. Yeah. The changes, he, the the effects of these of these jumps on his brain. There, there's real sense of risk uh, at this point for him actually being able to accomplish this. They're doing 133 spore drive jumps around the same geographic space in four minutes. That's an amazing amount to continually do and constantly alter yourself. I mean, that. The, the, so anyway, what I'm trying to say is that it, it puts his life at danger. Right. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And so, again, so right before he's going to do this one last jump. Right. And one of the most touching moments in the show... Before Samus enters the sport chamber, he lovingly kisses his partner and promises him that he will accompany Dr. Colbert to hear La Boheme. Right, which is uh, an Easter egg connected to these two men since both of them were in the Broadway production of Rent, the musical, which was based on La Boheme. Right, and inspired by La Inspired Boheme. by, yeah. So while the audience is moved by this moment, 
You know, if you've seen dramas before, read novels, you know we're we're going to also be filled with uh, trepidation because we know this is the mid-season finale and we are nearing the end of the episode, so we know it's not going to go well. Right. Our fears are soon realized when the jump fails, Stamus is near death, and the ship appears to be in a debris field in a sector of the universe that cannot be readily identified by ship sensors. Right, and, and they're, they're clear to identify that the debris is of Klingon ships, but they have nothing else that they can gauge. They, the, the star system is not familiar. There's no identifiable ship, uh, uh, space stations or planets near, so they really don't have a way of gauging exactly where they are in space at all. Right, and they say that the ship sensors are going haywire, right. and that's because if the sensors cannot put where they're at in context right. with the rest of the universe, then they, it has nothing to you know identify right. where they are in space. Because it's all based on what is already programmed, what is known. What is known, right? What and if known. they don't, mm-hmm. if and if it doesn't match what they currently established as known space, then they really don't have anything to go off of. So let's now turn to Ash Tyler, okay, and Lieutenant Ash Tyler. So after seeing last week's trailer. You know, we I think we both were quite anxious to see this episode. Uh, since in this episode, Tyler's going to come in contact with the sarcophagus ship. Uh, if you will recall, in previous podcasts, we theorized that Tyler is actually Vok, who was made to take the identity of a human by Laurel and her family of deceivers and liars. However, after seeing this episode, we feel we need to revise our theory just a little bit. When Tyler confronts Lorella on the sarcophagus, he experiences this really painful memories of what Admiral Cornwell, Cornwell assumes are symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder resulting from 227 days of Klingon captivity and torture. He becomes uh, incapacitated and can only act after he focuses on his love for Michael. Now, when they, you know, when the mission is successful and he's back on the ship, Tyler confesses to Michael how he became Laurel's sex object in order to survive to survive his Klingon captivity. The two of them share a tender moment where they both admit they were glad they found each other. They kiss, and Michael spends the night with him as emotional support. But there is no sex. You know, usually in films and so forth, when you have one of the major characters expresses this vulnerability, and there is a woman involved, there is always a sex scene, and I am glad that they did not fall for that cliche. This was, to me, much more heartfelt, much more sincere, much more realistic. Well, it was a moment where compassion and care was given to another person in a, in a moment of emotional distress. And that's what he needed. And that's exactly what he needed. And so I think in more so, it was a more, like you said, it was a more honest moment between two people who have become more and more intimate emotionally yes. over the course of their, their relationship. And so it's not it's not necessarily needed that they had to 
go and have sex because, in fact, it was quite helpful considering what happens next with Tyler. Yeah, so, however, we are subjected to another flashback. This time, it's depicting a torrid sex scene between Laurel and Tyler. It so disturbs him that he finds his way to Laurel's prison cell and he asks, what did you do to me? And her answer is, I will never let them hurt you. She says, don't worry. Don't worry. I will (laughs) never let them hurt you. So keeping this new information in, in mind, we believe Tyler, you know, we believe he's still his Vok in disguise, but we now think he is also a sleeper agent, similar to the character of Raymond Shaw in the 1962 film, The Manchurian Candidate. We believe Laurel will attempt to activate him in order, in an effort to take over the discovery and become, uh, and, and use the discovery to unite the Klingon Empire in fulfillment of Takuvma's prophecy. Right, because if you think about it, what was the thing that she was asking Cornwell for if they, when she was, quote-unquote, interrogating her? She wanted to be able to escape with her and then be placed on the discovery. The only reason she would have done that is because she knew already that Tyler was there and that they could, actu- they could actualize their own plan, which was to in some way capture the discovery or capture the spore drive mm-hmm. and then bring it to the Klingon Empire and use that to defeat the Federation. I think this has been a long uh, con in regards to how uh, Laurel has behaved because in the la- previous episode, I was wondering why she would have come to call in any way, shape, or form. There didn't seem to be any kind of logical sense to it. She didn't need to reveal herself. But she comes there because her spies deliver her the information that Cornwell is there. Mm -hmm. And that provides her with the opportunity to take advantage of that of that person of of Cornwell and get on to the discovery in some fashion. It's more so it makes more sense when you think of it like that. Because she never had any intention on making nice with Call. She never had any intention on working with him. No, she detests him. Oh, she, she does. And so it, it just makes more sense that she was coming there with this hidden agenda and that the, the objective that she, that she finalizes when she jumps on the back of Tyler as he's transporting over to the ship, she finally gets where she wants to be. So we have one more character we want to talk about, and that's Captain Lorca. In this episode, he's the one who rallies the crew to face the sarcophagus. Now, the sarcophagus, let us remind you, is a much larger, more powerful ship with a cloaking device. And it's already been responsible for the deaths of thousands of Federation crew members. So this is really a daunting task, knowing that you're going to face them. Even though, you know, they are connected to the sport drive, it's a daunting task to to face this ship. He tells them, before you were polite scientists, now you are fierce warriors. In this, you know, you can see that Lorca is giving them his version of the St. Crispin speech. From? You know, from Henry V. By Shakespeare. 
Yeah, this is where the young king inspires his troop to face their upcoming battle bravely, even though they are greatly outmatched. Right, right. So, you know, so Lorca sees this in the same vein, and again, he delivers, you know, his rallying uh, cry, you know, in the same spirit. Now, after the Discovery successfully completes its mission, destroys the sarcophagus, the captain is shown putting, uh, uh, putting uh, uh, medicinal drops in his eyes. In the midst of this victory, this gesture reminds us what Lorca has lost. He's lost his former ship and crew, and he still struggles with you know, the memories of that experience. Now, like other critics, we agree there should have been at least a brief scene between Lorca and Admiral Cornwell after her rescue. The audience should have been made aware whether she still considered Lorca incapable of commanding, co commanding the, sh the ship or if she now felt cautiously optimistic about his ability to lead. Right. It should have been a bookend to the scene we see preceding her going to negotiate with the Klingons. She makes it very clear that she's going to move forward to have him removed from, from, from the position of captain of this ship. And she even says it before she, go, she beams over that she plans on, she'll wait until after she comes back from this diplomatic mission and they'll work out something where he can quietly resign. So she, that's her objective before she gets captured. And I think it only would have been fair had there been a scene where they had to confront themselves following, and, and that point that's still out there, following her being brought back to Discovery, basically having her saved. Um, how she feels about it, how she, how maybe if her opinion has changed or not. That should have been um, a string, some, a, a story thread, a plot thread that should have been tied up. Yes, and, and then on another note, as previously mentioned, Lorca continues to be quite protective of Michael. We do not know yet what his end game is or what he has in mind for her, but we believe it is something more than him wanting a resourceful officer of his own choosing as part of the crew. I agree with you. I think because there's been a clear consistency in his interest almost obsession over over Michael from the third episode. If you think about the fact that we now realize the discovery running into her prison shuttle was not by accident, that was by design. Uh, we have also a sense that when he offered her opportunities to work, she even realized that they were all tests for her. When they go on the a mission in Lethe to cap to go and save um, Sarek. Lorca takes a moment to make Tyler clear that if she doesn't come back safely, that he shouldn't come back either. That Tyler Tyler shouldn't, shouldn't come, come back. back. Yeah, and so there is a clear sense, and then it's added on in in this last episode when he refuses initially to allow her to go on this mission to beam onto the ship of the dead and place those sensors. He's concerned, he has an interest in her that, that is more than just um, 
a captain concerned about somebody's close. He's not that close to her, but he sees some some value in her that, as of yet, hasn't been revealed to us. Right, right. So we're anxious to see what that is. Exactly. So that takes us now to looking ahead. You know, at the next episode. And so by now, you probably heard that episode 10 of Star Trek Discovery will not be available until January 7th. So during this hiatus, we're not going to leave our listeners high and dry. We do plan to produce three special podcasts in two-week intervals. So for the first uh, podcast that we're going to do during this hiatus, we're going to take a look at episodes one through nine and comment on aspects of the show we would like to highlight, as well as new revelations we now have about plot and character that we did not previously cite. Right, right. We Because we now have nine episodes to look at, we have a sense of an arc of characterization. We have a better sense of the circumstances. Some things weren't revealed until most recently. And so I think we can start making some guesstimates as to what the final six episodes are going to be covering and how the characters that we now are dealing with are going to play out. For example, the first episode, we're given, the, we're given Takuvma as the Klingon antagonist. He's killed within the first episode, uh, the second episode. And then... We are, he's replaced by Cull. Well, Cull just bit it in this episode. So who is going to be the Klingon antagonist for the Discovery? Adele and I think it's going to be Laurel. And, and, and to be honest with you, I think it's always been Laurel. It just hasn't been evident to us until more, most recently. Right. So then in the second episode that we're going to do, we're going to examine the role of people of color and discovery within the context of its history within the Star Trek universe. Yeah, there's been a very rich history of this show from the very beginning of having people of, of many ethnic groups be represented in the cast. And that's proceeded into this most recent um, TV show. And I think that's had an impact on both how the show has approached certain storylines as well as the benefit it's had in regards to giving us some sense of what the future might look like. One of the things that is challenging for a person of color looking at science fiction, reading science fiction, watching science fiction, has been representation. Yes. And Star Trek has been one of the most perfect examples to the contrary of what most science fiction has presented. It's given us a clear impression that that people of color of all ethnic backgrounds as well as women find themselves in positions of importance in the future. And I think that that's, that's good, but I think it more than, than just being a wonderful um, feel-good situation, I think mm-hmm. it also provides us with some examinations of how decisions are made differently as well as what that means for the benefit of humanity going forward. So we're going to talk about how, in many ways, uh, the Star Trek universe is ahead of its time, but at the same time, it's reflective of their time. Right, very much so. It's done both. Okay, so then in the third episode, the third episode we'll do, which will be probably a week before uh, uh, episode 10 airs, 
We will look forward to the second half of the, the discovery season and we'll make bold, but hopefully informed predictions on what we think will happen. Right. So we're hoping that those will come out every two weeks during this six week hiatus. And we're hoping that you'll stay with us and encourage us, encourage other fans to listen to and join, join on to the crew. So we want you to, again, we want to reiterate to you that you need to connect, communicate to with us on Twitter at Star Trek AOD or on our Facebook page, um, facebook.com Star Trek AOD. And let us know a couple of things. After Stamets' last jump, where did he send the ship and crew? What's your thoughts? Um, are they now in a different time period, or are they in a completely different dimension? Perhaps, as we've postulated before, the mirror universe. What has become of Stamets? Has he evolved into a different being? Uh, perhaps resembling the fate of Gary Lockwood's character in in the original um, TV episode um, where no man has gone before. What do you do believe that Tyler is a Manchurian candidate, a sleeper agent? Um, now that Laurel is on board the Discovery, what do you think are her objectives? We've given you some of our ideas. What are yours? Is there actually a big bad for this season? But until then, live long and prosper.